I'm not sure how many of you got involved with the whole uh, lottery mania that went on. <laughs> I'm not going to do a hand raise on it. But a story that I heard um, from a couple of years ago, an elderly gentleman bought a ticket and soon after he bought a ticket, uh, this was one of the lotteries worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Soon afterwards, he developed this uh, heart problem. He was sent to hospital by a doctor who ordered strict bed rest and um, nothing that would create a lot of excitement. So you can imagine his family's uh, reaction when they found out he had the winning number. Okay, And so they pleaded with the doctor to tell him and um, the doctor was convinced the excitement would kill him. <laughs> so, but he just, the doctor finally agreed that he'd go talk to the guy and uh, talk to the patient himself and, and he would approach the matter very gently so it wouldn't shock him. So he casually said, you know, if you ever won a lottery, um, how would you feel about that? <laughs> and um, the guy said, you know, nice, fine, but if, you know, it's fine if I do, fine if I don't, but I'm an old man, you know, it doesn't matter so much if I win or not. And the doctor said, oh, come on, you know, that, you couldn't feel that. Well, you'd be excited, right? And the guy said, no, not really. He said, you know, if I won, I'd probably give half to you so you could find a way to help me feel better. I mean, that would be how, what I'd want to do. And the, and the doctor said, oh, no, no, that's very hard to believe. And the guy said, really, I would. So the doctor said kind of half-jokingly, well, why don't you write a letter saying you'll, you'd give me half? <laughs> <laughs> and the old guy agrees, he's sure, why not? So he feebly sits up and he's writing this letter agreeing to give half his winning. He signs it, he hands it over, and when the doctor looked at the signed letter, he got so excited about the idea of, of getting all that money that he fell down dead on the spot. <laughs> he died. <laughs> this is the story. <laughs> um, so with the moral of that story, I don't know. I have no idea what the moral of the story is. <laughs> the danger of getting what you want or whatever. I mean, it turned out that the guy, you know, took it all in and he um, enjoyed the money, but he um, wasn't so attached. So I shared that just because I was watching the lottery and it was so huge and there was so much energy around and you heard about these long lines of people and so on. And it really was hitting me that um, in this culture, winning is a really big deal. And it's, winning the lottery is just emblematic. Um, in some way, there's a sense that we, that winners are envied and admired and we want to be a winner, we want to make it, we want to achieve, we want to look good. And there's under that the sense that, you know, something is missing, we need something more for it to be really good or really okay. Something's missing, something's wrong. And of course, research has shown that when we get what we thought we wanted, i.e. the lottery and in this way, um, our happiness quotient goes up some and then it returns to our set point. Doesn't work, the things we do. And we don't feel better about ourselves. You know, we accomplish things and you get a little bit of a spike. And do you know how quickly it is, is after an accomplishment that you know, it's, I sometimes think of it as about seven seconds that we have and then we, then all of a sudden we're back to what else we have to do to in some way dig ourselves out of the red. So, there's an undercurrent of this imperfect self 
and either we're chasing after things to enlarge and expand our what we are, who we are, enhance ourselves, or it goes to the direction of more self-punishing. There's a kind of a put-down uh, that we're that we're involved with. So tonight, what I'd like to do is um, explore more, and this is something I try to do fairly regularly. This very pervasive tendency we have to sense I'm not enough or something's wrong with me and to have a um, critique or a judgment or a sense of blame that's sometimes subtle and sometimes creates anguish. So I want to explore that because what I'm aware of is that not being able to forgive ourselves whether it's the small stuff or the big stuff, not not forgiving prevents intimacy. We can't be intimate with others and we certainly can't be intimate and embodied and fully alive in our own being. Not forgiving gets in the way of being really fully who we are. So the next few talks, I'm going to talk tonight about not forgiving ourselves and next week about the ways that we create separation from others and then um, on the solstice we'll explore the real flowering of loving-kindness. So we're going to kind of end the year, these three classes, on what really frees our heart. You know, what, what is it that frees our heart? And in the Buddhist tradition, the practices of forgiveness are the precursor to loving-kindness. That our heart is not free to love in an open way if we're holding on to resentment and blame. You can look at the self-forgiving as a kind of therapeutic process. We have these tangles and we're working on that level. Um, But what I'd really like, uh, the frame I'd like to have us consider is that in the deepest way, when we commit to forgiving, to letting go of the story and the blame we have that we aim towards ourselves, we undo the most deep holdings that sustain a sense of separate self. That really the the whole, if there's a goal to spiritual life, it's to realize who we are. It's to come home to a a totality of being and a sense of connectedness that is beyond this story we live in that's so limiting about who we are. And and the lack of self-forgiveness holds that story together. It's like as long as we're judging ourselves, we stay in that, that tight sense of self. So it's a life process and uh, we can explore intention and the ways that we loosen, loosen the grip. But the first inquiry is, how come we're so addicted to self-blame? And, and do those words resonate? Do you feel like we're addicted to self-blame? I'm just going to look around the room, just nod if you think, if that, those words connect. Okay, I, see, I don't see very well, <laughs> but I saw some nodding. Um, So, first to say that if you just look at the way our bodies are designed and our nervous system and our brain and just evolution, the activity of 
seek, of having an unpleasant experience and seeking a target, a, looking for a cause, is part of our orienting process. I mean, all living creatures, when they feel something's unpleasant, try to figure out the source of that unpleasantness and get rid of it. So targeting and blaming is built into our nervous system. Um, in a way, uh, meditation instructions, like open to what's unpleasant and be with it, is kind of a recipe for extinction, you know, in terms of our early evolutionary brain. I mean, acceptance would not be considered adaptive, right? I mean, you accept unpleasant... The unpleasantness is supposed to be a signal to go do something about it and change it. Um, So, and in reality, our own errors, the things we do that are mistakes and the mistakes of others have consequences. And, um, you know, if we have a habit of daydreaming or being distracted and we change lanes without noticing, you know, that we've just cut off another car, or if we in some way are, you know, not taking an important medication that we're supposed to, or if we have too many drinks and we're not sensitive to our spouse, or we lose track of a... if we're in a mall with a youngster and the youngster wanders off... In other words, if we are not... Um, alert, sensitive here, it can cause trouble. And so it's wise discrimination to say, oh, I really need to watch out for that. I need to be more alert when I'm with this child. I need to not drink that second drink, whatever it is. That's called wise discrimination. There's a difference between wise discrimination and aversive blame. And what we find and what is pervasive in our culture is that rather than recognizing what needs attention and responding, we have a very deep, intense overreaction of aversive blame that we aim at ourselves or others. So, if it was tens of thousands of years ago and there's unpleasantness and something comes at us, it would be a physical threat and we're supposed to feel that anger and lash out or run and fight-flight makes sense. Most of our fighting-flighting is now psychological and not only is it just psychological, it's an overreaction. It's based on things that are associated to what's happening from the past but aren't necessarily the case right now. But we keep creating, because we react, we keep recreating our predicament. So I'm going to ground this a little bit in some examples, but the key tool we use for fighting and flighting is, you know, our storyline of what's wrong. And we keep repeating it. We keep, we have this narrative where we keep telling ourselves, this is what's wrong with me. This is what needs to change. This is what needs to be better. And the Buddha called this the second arrow. And I talk about the second arrow a lot because the more we're aware of it, we start recognizing how many moments uh, something will be going on. We'll feel afraid or we'll feel jealous or depressed or having a craving or or we'll have an addictive behavior. And we'll add on to that the second arrow of, and I'm bad for this. And if you don't see the second arrow you cannot heal the source of the suffering. If you're locked into, I'm bad because of this. I did this behavior and I'm bad. 
I have these feelings and I'm bad. I'm having these thoughts and I'm bad. And I'm bad just means whatever aversive experience we feel. Uh, We can't awaken the kind of attention that actually will heal the knot, the tangle, the wound that needs our attention. So, to ground this, and um, I'm, these three weeks I'll be drawing, uh, the themes will be drawing on this second section of my book of, of True Refuge, The Gateway of Love. The book's divided into the gateway of truth, the gateway of love, and the gateway of awareness. And um, as many of you know, it's, it's coming out um, January 22nd. So I'm, I, now, now is a really good time for me to start taking some of the stories and including them more actively in my talks. And so in one, uh, one situation I, that I wanted to share, and this is a second arrow story, I mean, the main message is that true healing and transformation never comes out of shoulds. It doesn't come out of um, condemning ourselves we cannot condemn ourselves into a wholesome kind of change. And so one man I was working with, in the, he's in the business world and executive, had a very bad temper and took it out on people, employees, and the, in the worst case, his family. And one particular incident really got him, that's what got him talking to me a lot, was that um, his wife had a biopsy and she was supposed to get the results on a Friday. He got home on Friday evening from work. He saw a package that he had asked her to mail, still not mailed, and he completely exploded. And he forgot to ask her about the biopsy results, which turned out that the biopsy was okay. But it was like so, that was so horrific for him, that level of insensitivity. So he really wanted to work with his anger and he came to a meditation retreat and at one of, uh, we had an interview, um, he he said to me that, you know, he described how much he, you know, he hated himself and he said, I hate the beast inside me. It's ruining my life and it's hurting loved ones. So a pause and a commentary here. Whenever I teach about acceptance and forgiveness, there are always people that ask that question, but wait a minute, if I am destroying my life with binge eating, I mean, isn't that wrong? Or if I'm hurting or violating somebody, isn't that bad? Um, you know, why should I let myself off the hook? There's a sense that there's something bad that needs to be punished. And, um, you know, doesn't self-forgiveness condone the shadow? So I want to just name that, that that's the objection. Some of you might remember Jack Handy saying, the first thing was, I learned to forgive myself. Then I told myself, go ahead and do whatever you want, it's okay by me, you know. So is it, what is that, is that what we're saying? Is it resignation? You know, like, we're afraid, well, if, we, if I forgive myself, that's like resigning to bad stuff inside me. And then we've got Yogi Berra saying, I never blame myself when I'm hitting, I just blame the bat. And if it keeps up, I change bats. After all, I know, it isn't my fault that I'm not hitting. How can I get mad at myself, you know? 
So that's the objection. That's the fear that if we get, that we're going to get soft on ourselves and we'll never become the person we want to be. So with, with this guy, his name was Sam, you know, he was talking about hating the beast inside him and I asked him, well, does hating the beast help? Has it helped you? What do you think he said? <laughs> he conceded that, um, no, it, did, it wasn't helping. And our wisdom knows this. Even though there's something in us that says, I shouldn't let myself off the hook, we also know that um, when we get down on ourselves, it doesn't inspire us in any way. It doesn't bring about a, a healing transformation. And we know that with the justice system, you know, that a punitive justice system does not then release people that are, you know, healed some and ready to enter the world of the society. And, and in education we know when, when kids are in some way put down for how they're doing things, it does not motivate them to develop their brand of intelligence. There are so many. And we know in spiritual life that, you know, you can't, you can't let... I mean, the Buddha tried to do it. The Buddha tried to, you know, first do all these austerities and he was very punishing to his body. It didn't work, trying to overcome senses. In this story, there were these... Uh, a Catholic priest, a Baptist preacher, and a rabbi are friends and they're kind of competing uh, to see... Uh, they, they get together a few times a week for coffee and they, and they get competitive about how they each do different things. So they set, they set up this real competition. They're all going to go out into the woods. They're going to find a, be- a bear, preach to it, and attempt to convert it. Okay? This is the setup. Here, here's what comes. Okay, so they, they do this. And they each do their thing and they come back in seven days to share their experiences. So first we got Father Flannery. He's got his arm in a sling. He's on crutches, various bandages. He goes first. Well, I went into the woods to find me a bear. When I found him, I began to read to him from the catechism. Well, that bear wanted nothing to do with me and began to slap me around. So I quickly grabbed my water holy water sprinkled him and holy Mary, mother of God, he became gentle as a lamb. Bishop's coming out next week to give him first communion and confirmation. That's Father Flannery. Reverend Billy Bob spoke next. He was in a wheelchair, had one arm and both legs and cast and an IV drip. He goes, well, brothers, you know that we don't sprinkle. I went out and I found me a bear and I began to read to my bear from God's holy word, but that bear wanted nothing to do with me, so I took hold of him and we began to wrestle. We wrestled down one hill and up another and down another until we came to a creek. So I quickly dunked him and baptized his hairy soul. <laughs> and just like you said, he became gentle as a lamb. We spent the rest of the day praising Jesus. Hallelujah. Okay. So that's Reverend Billy Bob. <laughs> okay, so the priest and the reverend both looked down at the rabbi who's lying in a hospital bed. He was in a body cast. <laughs> and traction with IVs and monitors running in and out of him. He was in really bad shape. (laughs) Rabbi looked up and said, well, looking back on it, circumcision might not have been the best way to... (laughs) (laughs) So our theme here was um, punitive measures don't work. 
But if you look at what happens when we go to war against ourselves, I mean, when, when, the, when there's self-aggression, because it is self-aggression, and um, when we're going to practice together in a few moments, and I want to say that this self-aggression, it doesn't have to be the very overt kind of blaming of, you know, really getting on our cases in a, in a um, heavy-handed way. Sometimes it's the light stuff where we just, on some level, are always feeling like we didn't do it quite right. It wasn't enough. Some, something's missing. So self-aggression, when it happens, the mind narrows. It's more closed down. Lose some access to creativity and resourcefulness. In other words, you're not aggressive towards yourself and at the same time creative and resourceful. They don't go together. And it's not just mental, there's a physical component with all stress reactivity where there's constriction in the body. It's felt in the chest area. Sometimes it's numbness. You feel sometimes heat or pressure, but there's tension. So when we are down on ourselves, to different degrees, there's a closing down of the flow of energy. And that's a really important point because there's kind of an armoring that becomes habitual in the body that we move around with when we're attacking ourselves. Now, the reason I'm, I'm saying that's really important is what I've come to realize in working on forgiveness is that if it's not an experience that happens in our bodies, in other words, if we can't feel the blame and feel the anger and feel the process in our bodies, it actually, um, it's only partial. It's not really freeing. Because if you look closely, what is the process of releasing blame? If you just kind of pay attention to it, The only way to release blame is to contact the tension that's living in the body. In other words, you have to hear the story of what's wrong, but then feel where it's living in the body with a mindful presence. And then there's a thawing that's possible. And the thawing really affects the heart. So you have to contact the anger and the fear and the felt sense of badness and the shame with a mindful presence and there's this kind of relaxing. Mindfulness creates space. And in that space, energy begins to flow and the heart opens. So even a small amount of mindful presence in the midst of self-blame, even if some part of you goes, okay, blaming myself, let's just be present, opens up some space so there's some alternative possibilities. Now, what happens is that when we decide, okay, I want to start forgiving myself, we know that we've got certain places that feel really unforgivable. And most of us have a few things that are really, really hard to let go of. And that can take repeated work, coming back to again and again with that mindfulness until we really get familiar with the way it's gripping and we feel it from the inside out and there are different strategies for loosening it. But there's also the everyday blame. And everyday blame is something, it's kind of like each day we move through the day and there's these little ways that we hold against ourselves. And it's like accumulating this coating of gunk 
Um, it, it's like we accumulate these layers of caked on stuff that if we each day um, just run a kind of stream of, of at least the intention to forgive begins to clear it and free ourselves. So I do something I call a forgiveness scan and I thought we'd start with that as the first practice which is lighter, it's not, you're not going to be going at the big stuff with this one, okay? So I see you already setting yourself in a, <laughs> in a seating position sit in a way that is helpful to you to be attentive And the way I like to begin the forgiveness scan is just a first scan for tension in the body. To forgive means to let go of what we're holding on to. We're holding on to blame, anger, or hatred. Forgiving is to let go of the armoring. So you can do a sweep through your body and just gently the forgiveness sweep begins by just letting go of the tension, the somatic expression of mental tension, by softening in the shoulders, relaxing the hands, you might breathe in and out of the heart area, just feel the heart and just sense the softening there feel the aliveness there. Loosening the belly. And then just sense today. Let yourself just bring your mind to today. And as if you're watching a kind of a home movie of yourself moving through the day, Just notice if there were any places today where you got caught in that storyline of falling short, where you started holding something against yourself in some way for some interaction with somebody, some way of behaving, maybe an addictive behavior, something about how you were at work. with children, with a partner. So just notice if there's anywhere that you were logging demerits, you're you're down on yourself in some way. And what whenever you encounter one of those, whatever you're down on yourself for, just see if you can feel where it lives in your body the feeling of something's wrong. And simply, this is what I mean by the waters of forgiveness, just have the intention to forgive that. You might simply say, forgiven, forgiven. Because the intention is what you can bring to this right now. So there's some kindness in your heart that just doesn't want to keep carrying things against yourself doesn't want to have your armoring of second arrows. So whatever you notice from today where you might 
be holding against yourself for anything. Just mentally whisper, forgiven, forgiven, or whatever words may be accepting. Maybe the word forgiveness triggers off things for you. Then you might just sense acceptance, acceptance, accepting. Yes, it's okay. There might be something going on inside you right now. Maybe you're having a hard time doing this exercise. Then you can do forgiven, forgiven to that. So you start getting that everything can fit within this heart space of forgiven, forgiven. That your intention is not to hold anything against yourself. Now, if you hit something where there's self-blame that has very deep roots, like one of your big issues, just, just bow to it and just know that that's, again, your intention is to embrace your life, forgiven, forgiven. Just honor that it's difficult. And notice what happens inside you when your intention is to be kind. It's that simple. When your purpose is kindness, what is it like? How does your relationship with yourself change? You can take a few full breaths and come on back. So you can do any day you want, right before you go to bed, to do a brief forgiveness scan. It helps to kind of rinse off, just like you would take a shower or something. You just rinse off what's accumulated and it's very, very freeing. And inevitably, you'll run into some of those pockets that aren't easy to say, yeah, I can accept this or forgive that. So that's where I want to go next. And we'll come back to our protagonist, Sam, who um, was on retreat and he was remembering the look on his wife's face, that encounter when he you know, started exploding about the unmailed package. And opening to this depth of self-disgust, and, and so he, he went through this process and, you know, it was very much a process of presence, of saying, feeling the self-disgust and underneath that this kind of helplessness, like um, that this beast in him just took over. And he found himself, and he was on his own when he was doing this process in his room, he found himself saying to his wife, I, I can't help it, I can't help it, forgive me, forgive me. And he remembered, he had a memory of his own father who had um, a, an awful temper and would throw dishes and, you know, it was very, very um, out of control. And he remembered, had a memory of his father pleading with his mother after one of those tantrums for forgiveness. 
and he could see how his father was so out of control and realized that as much as he thought he should be different, his father in those days and him now, as much as he thought he should be different, he couldn't help it. And so when he told me about that, when we had our interview and he told me about what he had experienced, that helplessness, um, my response was, it really isn't your fault. The explosion isn't your fault. It's not your fault. Now, if you can get that, if you can really get it's not my fault, it's a very powerful and deep precursor to healing. Um, And it's important one to understand that the ego often cannot control the things we don't like about ourselves, whether it's the depression or the anger or the clutches of fear. I mean, this stuff arises from infinite streams of conditioning. I mean, I know so many people struggling with um, eating and other addictive disorders could have, it could, they could begin in the womb with a, with a mother drinking and that then began with another, you know, there's causes and conditions for that. Our parents, our cultures, fears, attitudes, our genetics, early life wounding, there's so many causes. We didn't sign up for our particular um, constellation of neurosis, and the behaviors that we really don't like. We didn't sign up for them. So it's not your fault. When I, you know, when I said that to Sam, he began to weep deeply, and I'll tell you more how, how, what, what came out of that. But just to say that um, it doesn't, saying it's not, my fault is actually what will allow us to be able to respond. It's not like we become irresponsible. We actually, by taking out that arrow of blame, we become able to respond. Now, uh, background, I, and I posted this uh, online, some of you might have seen it, st- the story of, um, if you're familiar with it, our Buddha right here, which is that uh, another teacher from our community and I were up in New England and we were looking for a Buddha for this class. And this is the one we found right here behind me. And I, and I, we, I really loved it, she did too. And I remember um, one day after class, I was kind of standing in the back of the room and I saw a group of people standing in front of it and they were all kind of like this, you know, leaning over to the left. And it turns out that this Buddha is made in a caste that's not upright, it leans to the left. Or it it leans to the right, but when you're looking at it, it's to the left. I don't want to make meanings out of which way it leans. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we have a leaning Buddha here. And and over time, um, for many people, it became a wonderful metaphor for us that we all have, you know, we didn't design our casts. We all, you know, created for many different streams of conditioning and we're all leaning. I mean, we're all imperfect. And the question is, can we learn to respond wisely to what's going on from a depth of our being beyond ego? The ego can't control it, but there is the who we are beyond the ego that can respond 
in a way that's profoundly healing. That response becomes possible when we realize, when the ego can realize it's not my fault, when there's not that self-blame. So with Sam, it motivated him to deepen his attention when he had, it was this release like, okay, I don't have to hate myself for it. It's not my fault, so now let me deepen my attention. And, um, and it was hard because the feeling of being bad is so deep in our body. It's not just a thought in the mind. It's a holding in the body, in the flesh. So we did a guided meditation together, what we call applied mindfulness, which m- many of you have done through these evenings here, are listening to the podcasts. And the guided meditation was we'd have, I, ha- I had him bring up a situation uh, with his wife when he first walked in the room. I had him rerun it. And um, there's the unmailed letters. And I said, okay, so what were you believing and feeling in that moment that you saw the unmailed letters? And he said, and he said well, there's anger. And the belief is, um, I'm not important to her. She doesn't respect me. The, you know, if, if, I was an impo- if I was important to her, if she cared about me, she wouldn't have forgotten to do that because that mattered to me. So his complex equivalents for being worthy and important and loved were that she would have done that. And then he felt that in his body, that sense of, okay, not important to her, and how does that feel? And it was the feeling of shame. It was the feeling of a real core um, flawedness. So this is where it has to be embodied, how to really feel it and really get the pain of that. And then I, I had him look through the eyes of wisdom. I said, you know, just, okay, how would someone that is understanding and kind look at you? And um, how would they, what would their response be? And he'd say the response would be, I'm suffering, and just to offer compassion in those moments. So do you see, he went from anger to hating himself from the anger initially. That was his looping to anger and then unpack it with mindfulness, feel where it lives in the body, find the shame underneath it, the powerlessness, and then there's the possibility for compassion, which is self-forgiveness. It's not my fault is the key here, because the it's my fault keeps on fueling the armoring. We cannot come to the tenderness of our hearts. So for Sam, there were many rounds where he would feel anger or feel down on himself and have to pause and keep unwrapping it like I described in his body. His biggest supporter was his wife because the more he regarded his inner life with mindfulness and understanding, the more sensitive he became to her. But he had to see he was suffering. So the alchemy of self-forgiveness is that we have to contact the suffering that's underneath the thing we're not forgiving. Whether it's addiction or anger or being insensitive to other people or being fearful or being selfish or whatever it is we don't like ourselves for. If you've hurt somebody and and you're having a hard time forgiving yourself for it, find out the fear and confusion that lived under that hurtful behavior. Now for one woman, 
And this is a, a woman who was, uh, and I share this in, in True Refuge too, she was a prisoner in a maximum security prison um, and she took a Buddhist meditation course taught by a friend. And this is a woman that's over six feet tall and she, large woman, bright dyed red hair and tattoos all over her body and she was known in the ward as a bully and um, she protected some women and relentlessly intimidated others. And during the meditation classes, while other participants would join in for the discussion, she'd just sit there with her arms folded and a kind of scowl on her face. So my friend had no idea, like, what is going on inside her? Because everybody else would share their, you know, share what was the, how they were feeling about the meditation. Well, in the final class, <clears throat> there was a go-round. And the question was, well, what was this like for you? And she was the last person to speak. And she said, well... What I really liked was that poem about the pirate. Okay, so what she was referring to, the poem about the pirate is a very well-known poem written by Thich Nhat Hanh called Call Me By My True Names. So I'm just going to read you a little bit about, of the poem that she liked. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear pond and I am also the grass snake who approaching in silence feeds itself on the frog. I'm the 12-year-old girl, refugee on a small boat, who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I'm the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. Please call me by my true name so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. So for this woman who um, ended up after that class going through quite a lot of changes in her own way, her, her, her basic comment before leaving was, you know, I always you know, I was thinking about this and she says, all my life I was the bad one, the problem one. Now I know I am suffering too. That's what she got from that poem. All my life I thought I was the bad one, the problem one. Now I know I'm suffering too. And the group was totally quiet and still. She had tears in her eyes, but most everybody was just looking at the floor, respecting her words. It's a really important breakthrough in the process of healing and spiritual awakening to get the reality that it's not my fault, there's suffering here. There's something that needs attention. This is wise discrimination, but not aggressive, aversive blame. All my life I thought I was the bad one. When we start softening like that, when there's that, start doing the forgiveness scan and start getting in the habit of saying, wait a minute, just let go of that second arrow, that kindness begins this thawing that happens and it's very 
in our bodies, the thawing. It's, it's, there's a softening. And it gives us access to a lot more creativity and spontaneity and our natural intelligence. Things start flowing because we're not in that constricted, you know, tight self-blame place. Self-blame is stress. Now, also I've seen what happens is that as we begin to forgive ourselves, a very natural remorse comes up for things that have happened. And that has a real purity to it. And that has its own intelligence. It's not a self-aversive remorse. It's kind of a healing remorse, an energy that wants to extend in prayer action in some healthy way. And so I want to speak to that because you know, it's a lot of the Christian and Jewish sense of atonement is, is in that, that we make a kind of reconciliation with God and with ourselves and with soul, with each other, whatever we want to think about it, that self-forgiveness isn't the end. It's, it's like it's part of a process whereby we take away this, the second arrow and open up our hearts and then naturally want to make amends where we can, naturally not to be a good person, but just because we care. So, a story, uh, maybe my last story for tonight, that I, again, that I included uh, in True Refuge on this, comes from a reading that was uh, from the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Collection. And some of you might have seen it, it's called Offerings at the Wall. So this is one reading from Offerings at the Wall. Dear Sir, for 22 years I've carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day we faced each other on the trail in Chu Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me so long, armed with your AK-47, and yet you didn't fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting just the way I was trained to kill VC. So many times over the years I've stared at your picture and your daughter. I suspect each time my heart and guts would burn with the pain of guilt. I have two daughters of my own now. I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. Above all else, I can now respect the importance life held for you. I suppose that's why I'm able to be here today. It is time for me to continue the life process and release the pain and guilt. Forgive me, sir. So you can feel that that the wholesomeness of that remorse, that he cared, he's expressing his care. Well, I I shared this um, some years ago and uh, I found out that that wasn't the end of the story. Uh, this, uh, the, the vet's name was Luttrell, and he wrote this letter, he left it at the, at the um, Vietnam Veterans Memorial, along with the photograph, you know, got, and got into the book. Um, but then it, it turns out that um, somebody found it and it made its way back to him, so he decided he was going to go to Vietnam and see if he could find the daughter, okay? And um, so this journey, um, he set off on his journey and he was able to locate the little girl in the snapshot, the daughter of the man he had killed so many years ago. And he felt, he wanted to give her back the photo of her father. 
Um, so here she is, a 40-year-old woman, and he's there, and through an interpreter he introduces himself. He says, tell her, this is the photo I took from her father's wallet the day I shot and killed him, and I'm returning it. And with a cracking voice he then asks for her forgiveness. After an awkward moment, Lon burst into tears and fell into his arms, and there the two held each other up, sobbing and embracing. Her brother was there, and he told, uh, told them that they both believed that their father's spirit lived on in this man, in Richard Luttrell. And it might sound superstitious, but they said that that was the day their father's spirit came back to him, to them. So I, I find that, re- that really um, touches me deeply that um, it's such a beautiful example of, you know, he killed somebody. I mean, when we think, well, what would be unforgivable? Well, usually we think, well, in war, it's, it's, not, it's forgivable because we're told to do it. But still, he's a human who was facing another human. And if you strip away all the culture and all that, you know, this is what happened. And yet, it was conditioned. It was a conditioned way of being. We're all conditioned. It's not our fault. And if we can say it's not our fault and have the courage to then feel what's actually going on inside us, we'll come to a place of an awake heart that can then respond to ourselves and the world in a way that's actually healing. We can reach out. Now, every one of us carries the conditioning of our ancestors. We all have this reptilian brain, a mammalian brain. We're programmed to fight and flee. We're in a culture that's speedy and greedy and uh, beyond the lottery story. You know, it just, it's all about, you know, money. We can see how much over-consuming is going on. We're surrounded by it. We're fed it genes, what happened in our childhood. So this is part of why I really like having this leaning Buddha here, is I think we need to be reminded regularly, we all are conditioned. We're all imperfect. We have our, our, it's part of our wiring to then turn on ourselves. And it's part of our capacity to see that and out of wisdom say, no, no more second arrow. I want to embrace this life. And that means we have to start with the life that's right here. In the Zen tradition, the, the phrase is to, for freedom to be without anxiety about imperfection. Can you just, for a moment, just imagine, I mean, just sense, so what would that be like? In this moment, just bring it into the moment, what would it be like to be without anxiety about imperfection? There's a radical, radiant freedom that can burst forth when we really take away the second arrows and let this life just live itself. Spirit can shine through. Okay, so we'll do our final little meditation, if you will. Some of you already have your eyes closed, but just short guided meditation and then we'll close.
closing the eyes and smiling into the eyes. Slight smile at the mouth. And smiling into the heart. You might sense from the inside out a smile naturally unfolding, spreading through the chest. And to sense if within you you can feel that sincere intention to hold this life in a forgiving heart. And if there's something sticky right now, some place where you feel caught, where you're down on yourself, to just bring that intention there so that even if you can't this moment do the letting go, that there's a sincerity that that's the path you're on. That alone, just to have the intention to forgive, opens the door and lets the light shine through. Cassia Berman writes, the mother of the universe refuses to let me worship her outside myself anymore. She's withdrawn inside me and tells me if I want to know her, I have to come inside too, which is the last place I want to be. Although she's been telling me this for years, she's never gone to this extreme before of actually hiding inside me. If I want to love her, I can only do it by loving myself now. We close tonight with a simple prayer just to honor this longing within each of our hearts to love without holding back, love this life without holding back, to have the courage to forgive, to let go of where we habitually close down, and to open our hearts, our minds, our beings the life within us and around us, that all beings might be filled with loving-kindness, held in loving-kindness, that these lives may be lived from loving-kindness. May all beings everywhere awaken and be free. Namaste. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule, or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.